Hi there, Owlets. I'm PB. I'm CJ. And we're the Hooligans. Uh, all of which is based off of a book series from the early 2000s by Catherine Lasky called Guardians of Gahool, which yeah. we both have a history with, kind of. Yeah. So let's introduce ourselves real quick. I'm Peepy, who's they them pronouns, and I have been a lifelong fan of the series, or rather, I was a fan of the series at age 10, and it definitely left a lasting impact on me. I bought all of these books. I reread them until like probably high school, honestly. Really? Yeah, I definitely reread them like older than they were written for. But now it's been like 10 years since I've touched any of these books. And it will be really fun to go back and see what my childhood favorite series looks like as an adult. And I'm CJ, she, her. Uh, I did read these books as a kid, but I don't think I finished the series. I think I only read the first two or maybe three books. Uh, but now I am a children's library lady. And I cannot convince the kids to read these, so I'm going to inflict it on other people instead. Which seems like a great plan. So, our plan for the podcast today, for our inaugural episode, as I know you've done some research on the history of the series and the author, mm -hmm. and then we are going to cover the first half of the first book today, mm -hmm. which if I recall correctly is titled The Capture. Yes! And I should say that my memory is fuzzy because I haven't done the work of rereading these books. I have left that... Fully on CJ's shoulders. I have. So what we're probably going to do is I'm going to tell you what I think happened from my foggy memories of my preteen self. We will get there. But first, um, we've got to lay down some rules. Yes. Yeah. Got to lay down the ground rules. And I think rule number one applies more to me than it does to you. Probably. Because it's no cussing. Yeah. But it's like, hey, I grew up in a no cussing household. I know how to follow that rule. My daddy was a sailor, and I got some words. But now we only have owl words. Thankfully, there are a lot of owl cusses. Yes, we will be doing some good owl vocabulary as we go, and I intend to use it as much as possible. And we've also got some stakes, I believe. We've got, oh. we've got some stakes to this podcast. Do we have stakes? We do, uh, because you have never seen... The Guardians of Gahool movie. The animated Zack Snyder classic. I think it was discovering that that existed that originally inspired me to say, okay, I have to do a podcast of this. So if we can get through, what, maybe first six, at yeah. least, like the core, the yeah. core set of mm -hmm. books. There are about 13 books in this series. Um, I thought it was 16. Is it 16? You might be right. But only the first half or so actually follow the main characters, uh, the rest are like prequels, and... I believe they go some very different places from the original series, so excited to see how things turn there, you know, when we get there in, I don't know, what, a year? Yeah. Less? So, that's rules, and that's stakes. 
Before we dive in to owl time, I think it is worth having a kind of a rough outline of like what kind of books are being published when Catherine Lasky's Gahul comes out and why. Yeah. And and I'll get to uh-huh. I'll get to why after, but briefly like it rattle off for me a couple of books you think are like children's canon classics not books that necessarily you grew up on but like the canon of what kids should read what do you oh, think they okay. are um let's see i go to narnia because that Absolutely. was kind of the classics that i yep. started with um let's see not what you're looking for but the hobbit <laughs> uh but same era so keep going you're you're on a good track here because those two books are published mm-hmm. right around the same sort of let's time see. Shoot, I feel like I'm forgetting some really important big ones. You know, you've got oh, your yeah, Lewis definitely. Carroll, Alice in Wonderland. You've got your mm-hmm. Dr. Seuss. So the books that you're naming right now are considered kind of golden age. They're like uh-huh. Victorian era classics of children's literature. Though, yeah, yeah, yeah. The first time that people start going, oh, children can read. And oh, children can read things that are specific to children. They don't have to read weird, terrible adult books. So that is kind of the first generation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's second generation? Um, this is probably where you lose me. I bet not. I bet if I listed off some authors, you would not only know them, but have read them. Let's see, because I'm more thinking of things that are more contemporary to our childhoods, like warrior cats, like animorphs. Ah, yes. And we were going to get there in just a second. Hold on to those. Because that is where I kind of have Guardians of Gahul. Yes, yes, absolutely. So we get this rebirth in the 1950s with, like, Roald Dahl. Oh, yes, of um, course. Uh, Wizard of Earthsea, Le Guin, right? Uh-huh. Books that huh, are... I don't think of those as children's books. Really? Yeah. They were when they were published. I they guess I just don't think of Le Guin as a children's author. That's probably fair. She's got a lot of stuff out there, I suppose. You know, I'm sure she's in like... She's in a Neil Gaiman sort of place where she wrote stuff. Yeah, yeah. Both children's books that are still enjoyed by adults and then stuff specifically for adults. But we're getting off topic. Point is... We have this era in the middle of the century where children's books become a little bit more popular. Not just Mm -hmm. popular, but we hit that golden age of big name authors. Then we hit the 80s. Yes. Um, There's a lot of like hypotheses out there for why this happens. Television is the big one. (laughs) Cartoons to sell toys to children. But if you look back at the big names of quote-unquote, the canon. Yes. There's not a whole lot of great books from the late 70s to all the way through to the end of the 90s. You'll find good books, because you'll find good books when you look anywhere, but you don't find big books until... Let me interject one sec. If you disagree and you think that there is a great children's <laughs> book from, published in the 70s to the 90s that CJ is uh, not remembering or acknowledging, I'm... you can send us an email at gahooligans at gmail.com. You're going to put me on blast. Look. I just want us to get emails. I am. I'm a children's library lady. I know that there are good books in the 80s. That's when we get like Louis Sakar and Diana Wynne-Jones. And you love Diana Wynne-Jones. I, did, I do love Diana Wynne-Jones. But. Peavy, tell me, what happened in the literary world in the very late 90s that changed the basis of children's literature forever? We have to talk about it. Oh, Harry Potter, of course. 
<laughs> no, I wouldn't too late. forget that. You didn't pass. Um, hey, I'm editing this. I get to do what I want. <laughs> um, it is Harry Potter. And we can say what we like about the author in the books now, uh-huh. today. But when those books came out, they changed what publishers thought kids were capable of. Absolutely. Suddenly we've got these books about trauma mm-hmm. and war and death. And of course we have, you know, 2001 that hits. Yes. And it's right in the wake of that uh-huh. that we get these Catherine Lasky, Guardians mm-hmm. of the Hool world. Because there's more than just the owls. Yes. In this world. But we're starting with the owls. And I think the owls are the beginning of the world. But the reason I wanted to bring this whole publishing history, this whole context up, is this is the first era of dark children's books. Yeah. You mentioned Animorphs. Yes, I know that there is a deep darkness oh, in yeah. Animorphs about the horrors of war. Uh, Harry Potter, Gahooligans. Mm-hmm. So as we get into... I think you mean Guardians of Gahool. Guardians the podcast, of Gahool. <laughs> not the hit five-star podcast, leave us ratings and reviews, Gahooligans. <laughs> Point being, as we dive in, we're going to get into some rack drops here. We're going to get into racial war in a children's book. Yeah, the, the, like, you thought that Harry Potter was on the nose with its racial allegory? Oh gosh, no. Uh, oh, Glocks? Oh, Glocks, no? Oh, Glocks, no. <laughs> so, um, with the caveat that we are diving into... Some serious trigger warnings in the coming episodes regarding race and gender, especially. Um, uh, fascism. Definitely fascism. Yeah. We've got villainous, fascist, white supremacist owls. And this episode in particular will directly deal with, uh, like, basically concentration camps. Yeah, basically. Maybe a better comparison would be, like, residential schools? I really don't think there's a better comparison, and I will talk about why later. Absolutely, absolutely. But, with that in mind, Phoebe. Yes. Who has not read the books in ten years. Alright, I will be fully honest. We recorded a pilot of this before that we never ended up doing anything with, so I have read this first book in the last five years. Okay. That won't be true for any of the others. So, this is my best shot yes. to get it right. Give me the best summary rundown you can of just the first half of this book. All right. I'm definitely going to miss the halfway point. Yes, you are. I'll stop you when I think I should stop you. Okay. So, Soren is our best little boy owlet, barn owl, growing up in uh, the bliss of the classic parents, 2.4 children, nice nest, every need taken care of. Has a perfect uh, snake maid servant. We will talk who all cares about for that all snake maid servant. Of, who eats all of the bugs. Um, we have a lot of focus on just how much these owls love to eat live bugs, and also like how excited they get to be about uh, eating meat and fur and bones. You are and diving way too deep into specifics for this summary. Keep keep it moving. You told me to summarize it the best <laughs> as I can, and this is what made an impact on me. Eating bugs. Noted. Uh-huh. Noted. We have songs about eating bugs. We do have songs about eating bugs. Uh, anyway, long story short, that all, uh, it all goes to pieces as our little Soren accidentally falls from the nest, or so he believes. Um, he thinks he's dead because, you know, he's heard his parents tell all the scary stories of what happens if you're, you know, a dumb owlet and you try to fly before you're ready and you fall off because then you'll probably just get eaten by a raccoon. 
But by a miracle of miracles, he's saved by people who take him to an orphanage. St. Aloysius. No, it's... I remember they call it St. Aggies, but I don't You're remember close. the full name. It is St. Aggies. We will, I will give you the full name. Uh-huh. And orphanage is not really so much a description as a uh, child labor camp. That's, yes. Yeah. Where young owlets are abducted from all around the world and taken here to do meaningless make work for the most part. Are forced to live during the day, uh, being awake during the day and asleep during the night. So, you know, completely breaking their n- normal nocturnal activities. And they are never supposed to fly. It is a canyon of owls who only ever walk and who pluck their flight feathers. I will partially interrupt that. That, that is mostly true. Mm-hmm. There is a designation of uh, destined not to fly, DNF, but it's not all owls who are given that. You can You're right. earn flight status. Continue. Mm-hmm. And that's mostly for, like, soldiers of the place. It seems to be some sort of military force but their end goals in this first book are extremely unclear especially because we're seeing it from the perspective of Soren who is a baby <laughs> he's kind of a dumb dumb too uh-huh. this you know, good sweet he's boy he's your classic eight-year-old protagonist of a children's fantasy novel you know when i was looking up reviews of this book in in researching um the most common complaint written by children uh-huh was that the dialogue was Dumb, and the main character was dumb, in this and they're first not book, entirely wrong. In this first book, absolutely. Absolutely, yes. I think he grows up a bit as the books go on, because they do follow him into his adulthood. But anyway, we're doing meaningless work, or mostly uh-huh. meaningless work, at this labor camp. Uh, Soren's one saving grace at this camp is his best friend Gilfie, who is kidnapped at the same time as him, or sorry, owl-napped at the same time as him, and she is a elf owl. She's very small. She's very smart. Um, she is, to do the Harry Potter analogy, she is Hermione. She's was, essentially just Hermione. I was going to say, like, this is fully in the 2000 era of, oh, Hermione is popular. Maybe every book should have a Hermione. But Gilfie's definitely the best character in the book. Oh, hands down. Let's see. Not everyone at St. Aggie's is awful. There are some people who are trying to do their best under the completely uh, fascistic rule of the place by leaders who we hardly ever see, too. There's a lot of, like, alienation. I think around the halfway point, we've met a couple potential allies. There's a librarian who seems like he's not so bad? Incorrect. Okay, we don't go to the library yet. We don't go to the library yet, but by the halfway point, we have discovered that there is a place called a library. Yes. And Soren, being a barn owl, uh-huh. is kind of aware of, oh, libraries are places where there are books. Uh-huh. And barn owls and books go way back. Uh-huh. Let's see. The other ally that they meet before this librarian is an owl named Hortense, who seems to be a perfect pawn of St. Aggie's. Until they discover, I think this is around the halfway point where we stop, yeah? We are just about to, they are going to Hortense at the halfway point. we're stopping before that? We are! Isn't that crazy? So anyway, Um, they think that she might be able to help them escape. So I guess where we leave off, she's going to help them escape. Now, tell me what I missed. Well, I think that the biggest thing you missed is, you described Hortense as the perfect pawn, but you didn't say why. And this is, this is what encompasses almost all of the first half of this book is moon 
blinking. Oh, of course, of Tell course. Tell me about moon blinking. All right, so one of the reasons that they have the owls uh, do work by day and sleep by night is they have this very strange regimented system of sleep where the owls are forced to march every like hour or so as they sleep and rotate around. And this is the only place where they can see the sky because they're in these winding deep canyons. So the sky isn't visible for most places. Yep, yep. And what Soren has realized at this point is that they're doing these marches to make sure that all of them are sleeping with their heads tilted up, pointed directly at the moon. And the idea behind this is that this is supposed to kind of weaken owl minds. This is supposed to, like, make them more docile, make them more brainwashable, and, like, in general, just bad for their mental health. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, And that, I think, is the, that is the biggest part of St. Aggie's. St. Agolius Academy for Orphaned Owls uh, is this, this moon blinking. And this moon scalding, which at this point, Gilfi and Soren have survived together uh-huh. by telling legends. Yeah, we tell stories about the title drop. Guardians of Guardians Ghoul. Guardians of Ghoul, which is made no sense to me as a kid, I uh-huh. think. Yeah, we don't meet a single Guardian of Ghoul in this first book. And there is one other thing, one other big thing, that isn't incredibly important in this book, but is later. But I will read it later. Um, are you talking about Flex? <laughs> I am talking about Flex. All right. So one of the main things that this uh, orphanage does is they go through owl pellets. All right. So if you don't know owls, owls have really interesting digestive systems. In fact, that's in the book where it's a in piece detail. of owl pride, where it's why they think they're better than other birds, because they don't have nasty wet droppings. They have... Solid droppings. So I'm I'm showing you here my book full of notes, uh-huh. uh, which is covered, just covered in sticky notes yeah. of places that, that I have marked as uh-huh. interesting. And one of these passages is Miss Plithover, uh, the blind nest-made snake waxing poetic on owl poop. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> blind snakes prided themselves on working for owls, whom they considered the noblest of birds. Meticulous, the blind snakes had great disdain for other birds that they felt were less clean due to their unfortunate digestive processes that caused them to eliminate only sloppy, wet droppings instead of nice, neat bundles. The pellets that owls yarped or spit up. Although owls did digest the soft parts of their food in a manner similar to other birds, and indeed passed it in a liquid form, for some reason they were never associated with these lesser digestive processes. All the fur and bones and tiny teeth of their prey, like mice, that could not be digested in the ordinary way, were pressed into little pellets just the shape and size of an owl's gizzard. Several hours after eating, the owls would yarp them up. Wet poopers is how many nestmade snakes referred to other birds. Of course, Miss Plithiver was much too proper to use such coarse language. All right, there's our first owl pejorative. Wet poopers. <laughs> Wet poopers. And the, that is part of the reason I wanted to read this passage. The other part is Miss Plithiver. What in the great glocks are we doing with Miss Plucifer? All right, I want to get to that. But first, I want to talk about owl pellets for a minute, just because they are really neat. 
And also, I want to get back to our original tangent before we start talking about Ms. P. Um, Owl facts. Here we go. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, just wait for my segment later. Anyway, so owl pellets, I don't know if you've ever seen them. You run across them in forests where owls are, or if you're like me, you may have had an elementary school science day where you dissected owl pellets. Gross. Just like our characters do in this book. Well, they're not really that gross because it's mostly like fur. It's more like, kind of like when a cat coughs up a hairball. So yeah, it's gross, but it's not like, it's not like going through like feces. But it kind of is though. Anyway, uh, owl pellets are, I usually think of them as like one or two inches long, depending on the size of the owl, uh, kind of shaped like little logs. And yeah, they're full of fur and bones. And importantly for this book, our, our pellet dissectors, they are different rankings. And the top ranking, if I remember right, is the ones who pick for flecks, which are little pieces of metal. That which our owls don't really know what they do, but we as the reader pick up that these are magnets. Well, and I don't even think, as a kid, I don't think I figured that out in the first book. Maybe not in the first book, but it's relatively obvious at the end yeah. of the first book. So, you know, not this episode, but next episode, where yeah. flecks do briefly become important. Yeah. But yes, yeah, so the main thing that they're doing is they're picking for magnets which also ties back into bird brain control, because we know, I believe this is like a pop sci fact, but I'm pretty sure it's true, that at least some birds will have their navigational senses messed up mm-hmm. by strong magnets, mm-hmm. because they kind of have a sense of north. They can get disrupted by magnets. Fact check me if I'm wrong. Emails. Gahooligans at gmail.com. That might also explain some stuff upcoming in future books. Yes. Which we will I discuss later. I believe it does. I believe it does. But anyway, though. Anyway, though. Anyway, though. All right, Miss P. Miss P. P. All right, so we are jumping back in the book to before Soren falls. But we, we do, we honestly have to talk about uh-huh. the snake because and she is a, a main character yeah, in she's her a, way. She's kind of a secondary character throughout the rest of the first yeah. six books. Yeah, and we will see a lot of her. Um, and I don't want to, like... Yarp on her as a character because she is, I feel like, fairly well fleshed out the more we get to know her. But the language they use, that that Lasky uses surrounding her, is a really mixed metaphor for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Feels kind of like, again, to relate to Harry Potter just because that is the, you know, space that these books were published in. Yeah. It's kind of a Dobby sort of situation. Yes. And a house self sort of situation. Of, oh, they like... Like, this goes different, Ugh. this is slightly differently, but it's the same, like, oh, we like being servants, and we like not being paid for it. Like, I guess this is slightly more, like, what's the word for it? Where two animals, like, do a thing that benefits both of them. Oh, like, uh, the symbiotic. Thing. Yeah, a little symbiotic, because, like, she does get to eat all of the bugs that show mm-hmm. up in the nest, and, like, that's a good place for that. Actually, that was one of my owl fact questions, is, is this an actual thing that owls and certain snakes have i have not researched it so i'll come back next episode with an answer okay i i'm interested in that but i do feel like having miss p here with this sort of rant on the wonderfulness of owls and she does it later Uh on the wonderfulness of barn owls in particular it does set up this this racial hierarchy Uh conflict that is incoming and it's uncomfortable to have it from her right off the bat, you know? Yeah, because she's like about as much of a parental figure as Soren will have throughout the series. Right, yes. Absolutely. Which brings me to this next little segment I want to read. Um, 
which is the the welcome to Taito speech. Oh yes, that Soren's father gives Soren's new little egg hatched sister, Eglantine. Little Eglantine, welcome to the forest of Taito, forest of the barn owls, or Taito Alba, as we are formally known. Once upon a time, long, long ago, we did indeed live in barns. But now, we and our other Taito cousins live in the forest kingdom known as Taito. Go ahead and take a drink. Every time I say the word Taito, it will uh-huh. get you yeah, deep. They... Um, we are rare indeed, and we are perhaps the smallest of all owl kingdoms. Although in truth... It has been a long, long time since we had a king. Blah, 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 blah. Most important sentence out of that entire paragraph. We are rare indeed. Oh. Uh-huh. Yeah, so we'll save that for when we go to my owl fact corner later. Oh. But that is an interesting thing to, for the owls to say. Okay, good to know. Of course, there's also implications there that they once lived in barns, yet we never meet a human. Mm-hmm. That... Mm-hmm. Uh, a thing that I'm going to hammer on every time we come across it in these books. This is the owl post-apocalypse. Humans have died. <laughs> owls has come, have come as the next fully, like, fully civilized species. Oh, yeah. There are other species that also might have their civilizations because there are other intelligent animals. But owls seem to be the dominant one, at least from the perspective of these books. And there are other intelligent birds, too. Like, we are really going to dig on seagulls yeah. in these books. I mean, have you met, say, seagulls? Yes, many of them. <laughs> but in these books, we don't like seagulls. <laughs> but we also meet, I think, some puffins who um, are intelligent. There is a raven who, or there's a crow or a magpie. A magpie. Yeah, a magpie, it's a magpie who mm-hmm. trades. Let's see. We worry about uh, crows mobbing yep. us. Yep. That's but we never imply sentience. So there's, there uh, is this constant... Like, we do with the magpie. We do with the magpie, but not with the ravens. I feel like there was some implied malice, at least. which Maybe not full sentient. But, but never once in my memory do they give crows, like... All I know is in book, like, ten or whatever, there's a talking wolf. Well, yeah, I mean, that's connected to the next Wolves of the Beyond. We'll get there. Maybe. We'll see if we get there. <laughs> I hope we get there. Um, but the other thing I did want to bring up here is when Soren gets kidnapped. Yes. Are you ready for some owl vocabulary? Yes, please. Oh, good. Um, these books are stuffed full of crazy words, some of which we have already used or explained. But please tell me about haggards. I don't remember haggards. You don't. You have to take a guess. Oh yes, of course I'll take a guess. Um, haggards. Um, we are f- for Is rules the- clarification. We are operating off of spelling bee rules, uh-huh. which means you can tell me to spell it for you or to use it in a sentence. I mean, if you spell it for me, then that would kind of make the spelling bee rules pretty silly. Oh, that's true. This would be more like encyclopedia competition rules or something. I don't know. <laughs> is that, that a thing? Anyway, know, yes. Anyway, all right. Haggards. Is that like wild animals who will come and try to eat owls? Is that a word for like predatory land beasts? No. All right. That was my guess. A haggard is a wild owl. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Soren, right off the bats, get him, gets himself uh, marked as a haggard. Oh, okay, yeah, I was ha- saying Aggie's vocabulary, not mm-hmm. owl vocab as a mm-hmm. whole. Yes, that makes much more sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and he gets himself marked as a haggard 
for asking questions. Oh, that's one of the biggest things in the first half of this book. Yes. Is that the one thing you can't do at St. Aggie's is ask questions, and the only thing Soren knows how to do in his entire little brain is ask questions. Which is like, good! It's great for him, but it causes him a lot of problems in this first book. Which mm -hmm. I'm sure makes it really, really relatable to any precocious child in school. Oh, absolutely. Well, and I remember finding it honestly kind of funny uh -huh. as a kid, which is a little dark now. But as a kid, you know, oh, owls. Hoo, hoo. But you, you can't do that. It's not allowed. Uh -huh. And I guess that kind of just gets to the center of the theme of St. Aggie's wants owls to not be owls. Yes. And I have something else for you here about St. Aggie's. Yes. And the theme of St. Aggie's. And yes. that is their names. Do you remember? Do you remember what they do about their names? Um, you don't get a name, you get a number. You get a number. This is super important, and I think mm -hmm. this is why I'm making such a big com comparison to concentration camps. Yeah, absolutely. So, Soren is given the number 12-8. He is not allowed to use his name. Gilfi is given, like, 28-2 or something. I don't have it marked in here. Um, and again, not allowed to use her name. Mm -hmm. You have to earn... A new name. Uh-huh. That will be given to you by St. Aggies. And here's where I... So I did a little research on Catherine Lasky. Yes. Before we started this series. Catherine Lasky is, at least culturally, Jewish. Uh-huh. That tracks. That and tracks. I think that makes a whole lot of uh -huh. sense in this first book. There are some mixed metaphors for sure, but... Uh -huh. We've got, you know, characters being referred to as numbers and being forced into doing this heavy manual labor <laughs> and being starved. They get a cricket a day. Yeah. Which is not very much. No. Even for a very little owl. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, absolutely. That does make it track more. And I think that really sets up what is coming in the next books. Uh -huh. it's, it's good contextual knowledge. Yeah, that's good context to have. What else should we talk about? Oh, what we else should do you have flagged? We should talk about the pit guardians. Oh, yes. The people who give the numbers, if I the remember The people right. who give the numbers. Do you remember anything about them? Yeah. Sorens insists that he call her auntie and mm -hmm. only auntie. Mm -hmm. And Gilfie similarly says that he sh she should call him unk. Mm -hmm. um, I remember that much. And they are just kind of the cloyingly sweet, but absolutely like, uh, you know, we are going to inflict horrid punishments on you while saying smiling and saying it's for your own good mm -hmm. do we get to the point where i know that they get uh moon blazed or whatever scalded moon, moon scalded. scalded uh in this one does soren get any of the other like really terrible punishments in this first half or is that only in the second half not yet we're gonna get to that in the second half while we're talking about pit guardians though they are cloyingly sweet uh -huh. and i want to make the argument that this series knowing that right this is we are talking about owl concentration camps. We are making these big allegories for the Holocaust mm -hmm. and racial war. Um, this is this is a passage on what to do about fascists. This book series is uh -huh. about what you do about fascists and how fascists approach you. Uh -huh. And Gilfie says some very interesting things about her pit guardian. Unk, I would love to hear Gilfie's own thoughts because she is the best character in this book, if not the whole series. We're going to skip around here. We're going to skip around mm -hmm. sections. It was all so weird, Gilfie had said. I called him Sir at first, and he said, Sir, all this formality, really now. Remember what I asked you to call me? Uncle, I answered. 
Now, now, I gave you my special name. I'm going to skip a little bit ahead. The Picardians go out of their way to be nice to us, Soren had said. But it is still kind of scary, isn't it? Very, Gilfi had replied. It was after I called him Unk that he gave me bits of snake? She sighed. I remember so well, as if it was yesterday, my first snake ceremony. Dad saved the rattles for me and my sisters to play with. And you know what, Soren? It was as if Unk had read my mind, because I was thinking about my ceremony. And just then he says, I might even have some rattles for you to play with. And I thanked him. I overthanked him. It was disgusting, Thorin. So, uh, PB, I don't know if you ever have any experience with fascists. Thankfully, not really. <laughs> but I think, I do think there is a point here about how they will approach you. You know, how oh, they'll approach their arguments. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, you know, here, this is just like what other people can give you. You just have to follow my very specific rules. I'm not offering you racialized war. I'm giving you snake rattles. Uh -huh. Yay! And let's just not question who doesn't even get that option. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I, I just thought there's a lot of depth there mm -hmm. put in a way that kids absolutely understand. 100% yeah, yeah. understand. So I just think this is like an early guidebook of uh -huh. what terrible people might look like when they come to you, you know? Yes, absolutely. Beautiful. Go, go, Catherine Lasky. Like, I know I got, I got some, some digs in here and some complaints about writing and whatnot, but the basic premise, like, go fight Nazis. Great. Yeah. Send that message. All right. What else we got? Well, we talked a lot about St. Aggie's. I don't think we've, like, given a blow-by-blow -blow of the plot, but I don't think that's particularly important. We have the general shape of things. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we don't have... We have to wait till the second half for, honestly, any, like, plot rather than, like, setting or character building to really happen. <laughs> well, we can talk about species sensitivity. We can talk about owl gender. Ooh, I want to hear about owl gender. Oh, you want to hear about owl gender? Okay, so I don't know if any of this stuff about owl gender is actually true. You're going to have to hit me with uh -huh. owl facts. See, I think the one thing I know about owl gender is that females are typically larger than males in terms of, like, sexual dimorphism. That makes sense. But I think that's about... I think that's the only thing that I really saw. And, like, they're generally, like, usually female owls will sit on the eggs while the males will hunt, just like most other bird species. Aha! Uh -huh. Okay, that's relevant. Mm-hmm. So, on the very, like, second to last page, before we hit halfway here, uh, we are about to go start an infiltration. We're gonna go start a new job on purpose and see if we can get some information to break out of here. Um, and in doing so, Gilfi thinks of something. Yeah. She tells Soren, we're gonna get you to be a broody. And Soren is so rack-dropping offended. Uh, -huh. uh, let's see. So, first of all, what's a broody? 
Um, it is unclear even to Soren what a broody is. Okay. In the way that lots of sex things are unclear to children. But essentially... But it's more like a nursemaid, except the bird version where you sit on eggs. Right, yeah. And generally there's, you know, how do we get eggs? Bird <laughs> sex. Uh, am I allowed to say that? Does that break the rules? Um, bird reproduction. <laughs> <laughs> now we can say bird sex. Bird sex. Um, Soren is absolutely just like... What? Me? A broody? Have you gone yoikes? I'm a male owl. Males don't sit nests. Yeah, sure, Sora. Sure. <laughs> I feel like there are definitely times where, uh, you know, bad owls will also sit on the eggs. This is exactly what Gilfie says. Uh-huh. Almost, yeah, yeah, they do occasionally, actually. So I was curious about owl facts, if that was true. Mm-hmm. Like, again, what I was saying is, like, generally, like, typical for... Owls, but there are so many different species of owls that pretty much any generalization you make about owls will get undercut. It makes sense to me. But yeah, no, one thing I remember rereading this book a few years ago is how committed Soren is to being a boy and how important that is to his identity. (laughs) Is that he is a boy owl, not a girl owl, in a way that, like, I feel like eight year old boys can definitely relate to. Uh, but. Plot-wise, this is all important because they are going to get up to a place that they think might be higher than the rest of the canyons. And neither Soren nor Gilfie can fly at this point. Do you know about how long it takes for little baby owlets to begin to fly? Well, it's different for different species. And if I remember right, elf owls are considerably faster than barn owls because that's a plot point. Yeah, it is a plot point. I didn't put those in Alifax just because I knew that they were going to be plot points. Yeah. It is 66 nights for Soren mm-hmm. and something like two weeks for Gilfie. Uh-huh. <laughs> so she's ready to go and he is not. But she is a good friend. But that's so not an owl gender. I don't know why that's not related. I don't know. Well, that might tie back into like species sensitivity. Because owls, you know, have incredible variation throughout species. The size comparison between Gilfie and Soren, mm-hmm. even as children, is kind of like it is drastic. My like, addition... Gilfie will only ever will be like six inches or less at full grown, yeah. whereas Soren will have a wingspan of multiple feet. My edition of these books does not have the illustrations of all the characters in the front, mm-hmm. like, but some of them do. So if uh-huh. I find an edition, I will, I will find them. Mm-hmm. I will track them down. I can do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, so, as we start to wrap up today, before we go to any sort of concluding remarks, or talk about what we're reading next time, I want to take you to PB's Owl Fact Corner. Oh, good. I have been doing some basic research, nothing too in-depth. Please correct me if I end up being wrong about anything, because it is very likely that I have made some mistakes in my research. I am not an ornithologist. (laughs) But... I'm going to play a little game with you, CJ. Great. Good. Fantastic. I have three owl facts here, and one of them is incorrect. Okay, I'm ready. It's up to you to tell me which one is incorrect and how to correct it. I read an entire book about owls, so I feel like I'm basically an owl genius with all the owl facts in these books, and I'm ready. All right, so we're talking about owl physiology today. Okay. Fact number one. Owl eyes are so big that they're actually tubular going back into their skull. And that means that they can't shift their gaze. Their eyes are fixed, pointing in a direction. So they have to turn their entire head to change the direction that they're looking. 
They can't glance back and forth like pretty much every other animal. That would explain why they have the, the fancy head turns. Uh-huh. Which does lead us right into part two. Fact number two. Owls can typically rotate their head a full 360 degrees because they have a lot of vertebrae in their necks with like really uh, large holes in the vertebrae to allow arteries to go through and even after twisting still not cut off blood flow to the brain. Hmm. I mean, I feel like having, okay, maybe, sure, yeah. And then third and final fact, owls fly near silently thanks to a combination of their serrated primary feathers that slice through turbulence and their soft secondary feathers that catch the small wisps of turbulence that might slip through. Are you sure that that last isn't just a straight-up quote from these books? If I remember right, that does come up in the books, so that one's probably a gimme. <laughs> it feels like, yes. I, true. I don't know. I'm starting off pretty easy for ya. Hmm. So it's, I think it's, it's definitely between one and two. Yes. I'm drawn a little bit more to two. I know that they can turn their heads Almost 360. I didn't think it was a complete one 360. Um, because, you know, bones. Yes. Would you like to know the answer? It's, it's gotta be two, right? You're correct. It is yeah. two. They can only turn their heads three quarters of a turn. Uh, 270 degrees. Which is still ridiculous and more than you should ever reasonably be able to turn your neck. Because, like, why would you ever need to turn it more than 180 degrees? <laughs> because you can't move your eyeballs. But no, they can't do a full 360 spin. Still, owls rule. Learning about owls and owl facts is always really fun, from their digestive systems and pellets, to uh, their weird massive eyes, to their asymmetrical ears, to their super fancy predator feathers. Like, there is a lot of cool stuff about owls. A lot of it comes up in these books, and whatever doesn't, I will be sure to share in my Owl Fact Corner. Next week, nestmade snakes. Real or not real? <laughs> um... We meet the last two friends that make up the core group. We do, yes. Yes. Uh, we deal with owl cannibalism. Oh, yeah, we do have owl cannibalism. <laughs> we also talk about the ethics of eating snakes. Uh, we do that in this first book. Do you want me to pull up my... <laughs> I got notes. Uh, I feel like we've run pretty long already. Like We definitely I, have. I don't think we need to get into it. I think it's safe to say that Soren and Gilfie come from different cultural backgrounds that have very different opinions on the, not necessarily ethics, but politeness of eating snakes. <laughs> We're going to go full Pokemon on this. You know, got to catch them all. Get every kind of owl. We're uh -huh. joining up with everybody. And all our right. owl posse, we're going to change the world. Yeah. Well, do you have any closing thoughts, CJ, after reading the first half of the capture? I'm just dizzy in my gizzy. Oh, that's a new one. Yeah, uh-huh. The only owl phrase I can think of right now is like the worst swear that they ever use, which comes up in like book four or something, so I'm not going to say it yet. Oh yeah, hold we, on to it. We have to say that I, the I do have, it happens. I have one more thing for you. I have an Easter egg for you. Yes, So please. we said the stakes for this was getting to watch the movie. Yeah. Um, and there is a character in this movie mm -hmm. who has been described as one of Zack Snyder's best Female characters. Do you have any guesses? Eglantine. <laughs> it's Eglantine, which is just beautiful. So, so we haven't talked about Eglantine, like, at all, because she is not mm -hmm. in the book, like, at all. We'll bring her up when she matters. But Zack Snyder, apparently one of his best female characters. So you have that to look forward to. <laughs> I have that to look forward to. All right, we need an outro. We need an outro. Kaka. No. Nah. <laughs>
First of all, that's not even an owl sound. What, what's Soren have to say about the Guardians of Gahul? Like, what's the phrase there? You know, oh. like when they're doing like the storytelling or they're being moonblazed. Hang on, I will find it. It's also in the beginning. So until next time, Owlets, just remember, a legend is a story that you begin to feel in your gizzard, and over time, it becomes true in your heart. So listen to your gizzard, be true to your heart. What's a gizzard? <laughs> we'll leave that <laughs> for you to Google yourselves. But it's where pellets come from. But feel it in your gizzard, believe in your heart. All right, I've been PB. I'm CJ. Till next time. Shoot, that was the intro to another outro. We're bad at this. <laughs> anyway, I'm PB. I'm CJ. Remember, listen to your gizzard. There we go. There's the outro. <laughs>